Before we start this episode, I wanted to let you know that I will be in conversation with the brilliant author and broadcaster Candice Brathwaite at The Lyric in Soho on the 1st of November, talking all about the themes of this podcast and more. You can book tickets at fane.co.uk forward slash Pandora. It's been co-opted and, and there's been all these different iterations, but one tidbit that I uh, that came out of my research was that in 2016, Google searches for self-care actually peaked right after the November election in the United States, which I think is not a coincidence. Again, um, I think as our world becomes more chaotic, we're all looking for um, something that can ground us. And, and we're all, to be fair, I mean, I, I do this too. We're all looking for some sort of like magical solution that's going to take away the external chaos. You're listening to Doing It Right with me, Pandora Sykes, a podcast where I talk to experts about the myths, anxieties and trends of modern life. There's no such thing as the right life, but what might we be getting wrong? In this series, I'll be exploring the ins and outs of sex, self-care and sadness and lobbing big questions at my guests like, could a four-day work week ever really take off? Why is society getting lonelier? And what would a fair justice system look like? This is a podcast that asks what can we do to live life better? Not just for ourselves, but for everyone. Pooja Lakshman is a psychiatrist and writer specialising in perinatal psychiatry and women's mental health and the founder of digital women's health platform Gemma. She is also a regular contributor to the New York Times, where she writes about wellness and self-care, amongst other subjects, and on which she is currently writing a book. I am fascinated by the business of wellness and how it sells self-care back to us in the form of green juices and vagina candles. Hi, Gwyneth. And it's something I wrote about at length in my own book in an essay called The Dreamcatchers. So I was really excited to talk to Pooja about the psychiatry underpinning it, like what are we searching for when we buy into Wellness Inc? And what should we be looking for instead? Pooja and I talk about what real self-care looks like, the people who wellness ignores and forgets, why burnout is sometimes a social choice, and the martyrdom of motherhood, quote-unquote, on which I found Pooja really personally galvanising. I start by asking Pooja, what is the biggest myth about self-care? The biggest myth about self-care is that self-care is not a noun. Self-care is a verb. Self-care is all the internal work that you need to do to make the best decisions, the best choices for yourself. And so, you know, as, as you talk about so much, Pandora, the, the wellness culture that we live in has us constantly inundated with the yoga class, the meditation apps, the juice cleanses, and all of those things, if you think about it, they're all external products, but self-care in itself is completely an internal process. So real self-care is all of the work, the internal work that you need to do to get yourself to the yoga class, to actually use the meditation app. So it, it's a verb and it's also completely invisible. It's the work of, you know, setting boundaries, 
dealing with your self-talk, navigating your relationships. As a psychiatrist, you know, I really have to believe that that internal work that we do to change our internal narrative and to give ourselves real self-care, that's the work that we need to do to change the systems. I was trying to think of a word that I thought more accurately described what we were going for when we use the term self-care or we talk about self-care or as you say we buy those classes or those products which there's nothing wrong with those things they're just not necessarily doing what they're talked about doing or destined to doing and I felt like it was more like self-respect 100% I couldn't agree more um, to me real self-care makes you more of yourself and we're all different right we all have different values so like you were saying that being in integrity, being aligned with your values, that means kind of fully knowing this is for me and then this other thing is not for me and that's okay. Being able to make those hard choices. And again, so much of this is influenced by the amount of resources that you have, the system that you live in and kind of where you stand on the totem pole. So it's going to look very different depending on what your um, economic status is, what your race is. Um, so we can't pretend that, um, that self-care is accessible on the same level for every single person. But at the same time, I think that no matter where you are, you can find ways to become more of yourself. Um, and I always think back to my own journey you know, as a physician and, and being a medical student and being an intern and kind of just what the different choices were when I was at the bottom of the totem pole um, versus now when I've made my way up a little bit higher and, and there more are more choices for me now. And definitely if those choices are being sold to us as something that you buy, and I want to get into that a little bit later, Wellness Inc, this idea that you know self-care is actually part of a, a big booming business. To go back to something you wrote recently, self-care has become the panacea for an overexhausted workaholic american culture why how and when do you think this happened yeah absolutely so this is such an interesting story and it's it's one that i've been researching and looking into as i'm writing my book right now um you know when did self-care become the thing that everybody was thinking about and it's interesting because self-care as a term has been around for quite some time so for decades, you know, the term self-care has been in the conversation. And, and of course, actually, I think not by coincidence, uh, originally the, the term self-care was sort of coined by black women activists who were trying to safeguard and protect themselves in an impressive environment and kind of use that term self-care as a way to give themselves space and empower themselves to actually look out for their own well-being. Um, and I think that that's actually really um, just so poignant that that black women were the ones who kind of first used this term. And then it's it's been co-opted and then there's been all these different iterations. But one tidbit that I uh, that came out of my research was that in 2016, Google searches for self-care actually peaked right after the November election in the United States, which I think is not a coincidence. Again, um, I think as our world becomes more chaotic, we're all looking for um, something that can ground us. And, and we're all, to be fair, I mean, I, I do this too, we're all looking for some sort of like magical solution 
that's going to take away the external chaos. Um, so, so self-care has been around for a long time, but more recently, I think, and I would say in my clinical practice over the past five years or so is when I'm seeing more and more women coming in and they're saying, you know, I'm exhausted. I'm not sleeping well. I'm not eating well. I'm burnt out. And I feel like it's my fault because I should be doing self-care. I should be going to yoga class. I should be using that meditation app. And the fact that I can't figure out how to make time to do those things, that means that it's my fault that I feel that way. And I think it's really important that for all of us that we just remember how easy it is to internalize the messaging that our culture gives us. Um, it, it's, not about, it's not about us fixing something that's wrong with ourselves. It's more about looking at what can we do to me to bolster ourselves in inside these systems that are constantly working against us. That's really fascinating about when you sensed a real surge um, through Google Trends. And I love Google Trends. I think it's such an interesting way of revealing the anxieties and the myths and the and the stories about society and where we are at. And obviously 2016, you know, that's absolutely related to the political situation in the states how do you think self-care relates to social chaos or the feeling of social chaos when there's social chaos we're looking for answers and if if we look at kind of all these different products and services that are sold to women under the guise of self-care um, they're all so prescriptive right it's sort of like take this exercise class or do this cleanse or do this diet. It, it's like, here's the recipe. I have the recipe. If you follow this recipe, you will feel more certain. You will feel like you know the answer. And all of these companies, they have one answer for you. And it's, it's their answer, right? It's their product that they're selling. Um, and, you know, psychologically, I think all of us, we, in times of external chaos, we want to know what's the right answer. And the wellness industry, the self-care industry is just so talented, so good at you know, um, offering those supposed answers. I think a lot of it as well is appeals to our, and I do think it's a particularly female desire, I'm not saying exclusively female, but I do see it in a lot of my female friends and myself is this desire to have control. I would say this slightly futile desire to have control over our mind and our body and, and our lives as a whole. And there's a desire to unify the mind and the body through wellness. And it, it gets called the mind body, doesn't it? I, as a psychiatrist, I, I've always thought of the mind and the body as one unit, you know, and they're not separate, right? Our nervous system is, is connected. Um, our gut, you know, is part of our nervous system. I think the distinction is sort of arbitrary. The way that I think about it is visible versus invisible. I see the external bit as more of the method and the internal bit as more of the principles. And what we need for real self-care is the internal principles, the living by your values. Like we were just talking about this sort of like alignment of inner integrity of being able to know, you know, this, this life path is for me. 
I want to be a mother. I don't want to be a mother. And I'm okay with that, you know, or I want this certain career. Or I want this other career and being clear on those decisions. That's part of real self-care. And that, again, that's invisible. So I think I, I, um, when the, uh, the internal is sort of aligned and you're able to give yourself space to be compassionate, to set boundaries, to do the work of having hard conversations with yourself and with your loved ones, that's when your actions can then be in integrity. And, and that's the process of real self-care. And, and I, I just like I want to point out that it's a messy process. And again, just going back to your earlier question, it's not something that somebody else can prescribe to you. And I think, you know, just thinking about your work, Pandora, and your book, you know, the title, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? I think that just points to exactly why we're always looking on the outside for these external self-care solutions, because the process itself the process of real self-care is invisible and it is hard and it is messy. So we so desperately want not only control, but we want someone on the outside to tell us, hey, you're doing a good job. This is the right path for you. You are doing the right thing. Um, when in fact, the only person who can kind of give that to you is yourself, right? I was really conflicted over that title because I thought that you would, you know, the response would be, well, of course, women don't still worry about if they're getting it right. We're modern women. We know that life can be lived in many different ways. And to an extent, that's true. But I think it's manifested in more insidious ways. And I think what makes it trickier is that it's really hard to know if you're making the choices based on what's best for you. 100%. I think it kind of gets back to this whole internal versus external. Um, you know, who's who's driving the bus in terms of the decisions that you make for your life? And are you inward focused and able to allow yourself to have agency? Or are you constantly sort of looking for cues from your social circle or your family? And, and again, to be clear, like this is really hard work. And it's so, so much hard. of it, <laughs> you know, depends on your life circumstances and your resources. And um, I think that, uh, but I think you're spot on that it it can become so performative. And, and I've experienced, you know, I'm a psychiatrist, but I'm very open about the fact that I've struggled with depression and anxiety. You know, I, I go to therapy and, you know, about a decade ago, I found myself um, sort of at the pinnacle of all of these external, shiny, prestigious um, accomplishments and was totally empty on the inside and had no idea how to actually um measure success because I, I do think part of this is like recognizing that everybody has to make their own success you cannot use external mm -hmm. measures for success when you do that um you you're not in integrity like you were saying and that success isn't just about goals isn't about the things that you achieve or have it's about the kind of private peace inside of you yeah, and as I've been writing this book, and, and when I decided to write this book, um, I it was, you know, kind of on a decades-long personal journey and also academic journey in my own training as a psychiatrist of kind of figuring out, well, then 
what is real self-care? You know, we know that all of this external stuff isn't working. So what are we supposed to do instead? And it comes down to, like we, you were just saying, it's like making the space for yourself, actually giving yourself the space to feel your feelings, to be able to reflect, to, you know, have the hard conversations that you need to. And I think just kind of tying back to the wellness bit, it's so much easier to buy a gym membership. It's so much easier to get a mani-pedi or to plan a girl's weekend than to really try and understand your internal landscape. And again, I don't think this is our fault because our culture like hasn't done a good job of equipping women to understand the multitude of paradoxes that are exist in our society. We're constantly told that we're supposed to, you know, do 20 different things, all of which are completely contradictory. <laughs> so, so how do you navigate that, right? How are you supposed to be a super mom and also a CEO and an Instagram influencer and like a party planner, <laughs> right? It's not possible. But so I guess what I'm trying to say is I think that uh, the real self-care is like learning the tools and the skills to deal with all of those paradoxes. And, and that's something that I think is a skill that can be learned. And, and hopefully my book will help with that. And I think that in order for us to kind of reach a place where we do feel like we have nourishing practices and, and real self-care, that the internal work is will what be what gets us there. And now a quick word from my sponsor, Zen Move, an online nationwide law firm that puts the well-being of its clients first. Moving house is stressful. For those lucky enough to be getting on the property ladder, there's a lot to get your head round. Contracts and deadlines and oodles of legal jargon. So why not eliminate that stress with Zen Move and their positive approach to conveyancing? The key is in the name. Their smooth, friendly and clutter-free approach will ensure that no one tears their hair out or forgets to feed the cat while wading through paperwork. Head over to zenmove.co.uk to get a quote and to discuss your move the Zen way. I wanted to talk to you about burnout. You made the brilliant observation in the New York Times that some of the women you saw in your practice, many of whom were working mothers, were not suffering from burnout, but despair. What is the difference? So this is a topic that's really kind of very near, near to me because I experienced it myself as a physician. Um, you know, it's, it's, and I, I was seeing this in my patients during the pandemic. I'm still seeing it um, in my patients. You know, it's, Burnout is that feeling that, you know, everything is completely meaningless and no matter what you do, it doesn't matter. You feel so disconnected, uh, whether it's burnout in the workplace or it's burnout from parenting or, you know, family obligations, caretaking. Um, but it struck me like what I was seeing in the pandemic felt so much more existential and deeper, like you were saying, like this despair, this hopelessness. And what I realized is that burnout is the wrong term because burnout puts the onus on the victim. Burnout says, hey, you should learn how to be more resilient. You should start meditating. You should, you know, 
go to that wellness retreat, whatever it is, when in fact, the reason that everybody feels so burnt out is because they've been betrayed, like betrayed by, by our healthcare system, betrayed by public officials who couldn't get control of this pandemic, right? You know, there's the list goes on and on and on in terms of the systems and the people in power that we've been betrayed by. Um, and something that I think reframes the narrative, it's so important for women because again, as women, I think it's so easy for us to internalize the reasons and, and blame ourselves when we feel distressed. Um, but to turn it back and remember that these are external problems, these are social issues, everybody feels this way. I think that there's actually power in that. Burnout as a buzz phrase has had some criticism Broadly speaking, the critique of burnout is that some women have always been burnt out, typically women of color, typically women who earn less, have to patch together lots of different jobs, can't afford decent childcare, and that we're only really talking about burnout in earnest now as it's beginning to affect middle-class white women. And I think it's then very tied into the conversation around self-care. What are your thoughts on that? I think that that's absolutely true. Women of color, black women, single moms have been feeling this way before the pandemic. And it's interesting, some of the reporting that's coming out now around, um, you know, kind of going back to normal and, and let's get back to pre-pandemic times. And, and there's plenty of families and folks out there that are like, hey guys, pre-pandemic times was not great for us. <laughs> um, I think it's, it's really the conversation around burnout, self-care and privilege is, is one that is really important to have whenever we're talking about self-care or burnout. This came up recently with Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka, who are both, you know, superstar athletes who made very public, powerful decisions to step away from their championships and the Olympics, respectively. And to see somebody of her stature saying, I'm, I'm struggling and I'm going to step back. I'm saying no, despite the costs. To me, that felt so powerful because I've had so many patients who've, who've decided to come see me because they heard um, a celebrity talk about depression or they heard a celebrity talk about suicide or you know whatever it might have been and that was the push they needed to actually seek help i had people bring up to me but we shouldn't be putting that weight on black women you know and and i think that that's true it's it's not something that um naomi or simone has the responsibility of changing and so i think that um we always have to be talking about privilege and we always have to be really looking at what uh, what are what biases are at play too. What I found so interesting as well around Naomi Osaka's um, decision to not do press is that a lot of the response was um, a lot of the response was kind of, oh no, what are we going to do? What will her sponsors do? Are lots of other girls going to feel like this? Is she going to kind of start a trend? Rather than what would have been really simple is, is to look at the way in which press conferences, press conferences are done around sporting events and just maybe don't do so many live. Um, maybe look at how, you know, why are the 
sports women or sports men, sports people coming off their pitch or their court and having to immediately go into a really high pressure situation when they've just come out of a high stressful situation. Do things need to be live? Can things be franchised? You know, there are so many ways in which we could look at how those media interviews are done, which aren't hugely taxing to look at and wouldn't make an enormous difference and might mean that amazing athletes can be retained. It's interesting for me as a psychiatrist working with my patients, because on one hand, it's easy for folks on social media to kind of say, well, yeah, like here, here are these celebrity athletes that are, you know, make millions of dollars every year. Like, you know, they're in such a privileged position, but at the same time, these are the same types of negotiations that are happening for women everywhere. The stakes feel just as high, right? And having a negotiation with your in-laws about the holidays and trying to, you know, kind of navigate, this is what we will do, this is what we won't do. It's the same type of thing. It's the same dynamic. Um, so I just think it's, it is really powerful when, um, when it happens on such a grand stage. And, and I mean, I, of course, completely agree with you that there are so many fixes, easy fixes that could have taken place systemically in in kind of um, the media world that would have allowed things to go on um, for Naomi. But the fact that they weren't, um, that tells us everything that we need to know, perhaps, about why she decided to say no. <laughs> I mean, I do totally understand when people find it frustrating hearing celebrities complain about more tedious or stressful aspects of their job because obviously the theory is that they get paid tons of money they have to take that bit of the rough with the smooth but also that does seem like self-care writ large that's the self-care not the okay I'm really stressed at my job so I will get a massage or I will go and get drunk, I'll just let loose. Like nothing wrong with getting a massage, nothing wrong with getting drunk, but only by trying to opt out of those not entirely necessary parts of your job if we really think about it. That's the only way in which you're really gonna kind of be able to do the deep work, the deep self work. 100% and, and, and that's the work that actually changes the system, right? Mm. That opting out, that saying no, that trying to negotiate and you might not always be successful, right? But just having that conversation and saying, I'm going to think about this a different way and I'm gonna make a hard choice. That's the work that changes the system. The getting the massage or going out with your girlfriends, like that's great, I love doing that too. I'm not trying to knock it, but that doesn't change the system, you know? You also make the painful but necessary point, I think that a lot of burnout isn't burnout, it's social choice, it's, choosing to live an unsustainable lifestyle. I sometimes need reminding that I've made a choice. You know, I'm freelance, so when I'm really overworked, the only person that's put me in that position is me. And the only way to make this better, to make your life easier and less stressful, as you say, is to opt out of that way of living. Like, to be clear, I'm not saying of care obligations or of work. But a lot of the time, it's a chaos or a stress of our own making. So is saying no the best form of self-care? I think for me, um, at various points in my life, saying no 
has been the best form of self-care. And sometimes that's been a choice. Um, at other times it's been, you know, because I've been burnt out or, um, you know, have not been able to keep up with what I needed to do. So it was sort of a choice that was made for me in some ways. Um, I, again, kind of going back to the conversation around privilege and resources, I think it is different for everybody because not everybody can step away um, from their income source, right? But I think, it, again, it kind of requires making hard decisions and really knowing what brings you fulfillment, what brings you value and kind of nourishes you more deeply. Because maybe that means, maybe there is an opportunity to do something that aligns more with your values and, and perhaps have a smaller paycheck. But maybe that means that your house isn't as fancy or the car that you drive doesn't keep up with the Joneses as much as other people. Um, I think that there's all these ways that we can reflect more on our decision-making. Um, but at the same time, there's many families and many women, um, you know, women of color, black women, like we've talked about single moms where you don't, it, it can feel like every single ball that you're juggling is, is made of glass and there's no room to um, let anything go. The problem is, and I mean, we've just been discussing this with Naomi Osaka and I think with Simone Biles as well, you could say, is saying no really annoys people. Creating boundaries is really hard and it can be more painful, certainly in the short term, than the overloading. One of the things that I see in my practice is that the guilt that comes with saying no is what we're all afraid of. We're terrified of the, the bad feelings that come after we decide to set the boundary. Most of us know when we want to say no. We feel it immediately in our gut. We're dreading that dinner. We're dreading getting that text message. You know, We know it, but it's kind of like the backlash that you're going to, to get afterwards feels like it's just too much. So, so again, then part of real self-care is learning these skills and these tools so you're not controlled and consumed by the guilt. Um, so you don't have to constantly live your life based on what everybody else wants of you. In your work, you focus a lot on working mothers and the tyranny of intensive parenting. I remember reading something absurd like mothers now work more hours than they ever have before, but spend more hours than their ch with their children than they did in the 1970s. How does that work? And what is the impact? And how has this led to where we are at with self-care? So I think this fits a little bit with um, a concept that you talk about in um, how do we know we're doing it right? With this sort of the flattening of our identities as women. Um, for women, especially for working mothers in 2021, there, there's no time, right? There's no time. Everything is about either your work or your children. And so the way that women do it is that they're constantly on. I and mean, perhaps this is a little bit of what you were talking about in your last question. You know, it's that we're constantly going and going and there's no space to slow down. Um, and when you do slow down, you end up feeling all of those pent up emotions, whether it's anger, or frustration, or sadness, or grief, um, that don't feel so great. <laughs> so then you end up just continuing to go and go and go and take care of everybody else. 
this 100% is like why it's so easy to then grasp for a quick fix self-care solution. Because the idea of sitting with yourself and your thoughts for an hour and figuring out, you know, what are my values, what's working in my life, what's not working, that's really scary. You also look at the martyrdom of motherhood in your work as well, which I found really interesting. Yeah, you know, martyrdom is something that I started writing about because I totally fall victim to it myself. And, you know, it's such a gendered term, which, you know, isn't great, but um, I see it everywhere in my practice. And I find it fascinating because um, we fall into it so easily as women. And it's this interesting paradox where, you know, you're making, especially for moms, you're making yourself smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, at the service of your children and, and your families, but your suffering, your resentment, your rage, your fury is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and you get attention for that suffering, you know, and, and you want that to be seen. Um, but it's a paradox because that's not typically the reason that people decide to become mothers, right? So in the end, it, it you're not actually getting your needs met, but you're kind of discharging a lot of this um, energy out there. And, you know, one of the things that comes to mind is, you know, how do you, how do you prevent this martyrdom or what does it look like to kind of make decisions that could potentially um, prevent yourself getting into the martyr mode? And, you know, I had a conversation recently with one of my patients where, that um, I think is a, a good example of, of self-care, of real self-care, where she had, um, you know, her baby was maybe six or eight months old, and um, this was before the Delta variant. So her husband was going to be uh, traveling for work again, and, and he was only going to be gone for two nights. And her an immediate thought was like, well, it's only two nights. I don't need any help. Like, it'll be okay. It'll be fine. Um and her, her mom lived, you know, a couple hours away and could easily drive. And, and we talked through it and we said, well, why, why not invite your mom and have our moms vaccinated? You know, why not have her come and help? You're going to be alone for two nights with the baby. Like, doesn't that make sense? And, you know, it's just so interesting. Her gut reaction was like, it's okay. I can do it. And, and kind of tied to that suffering versus instead reflecting on it and saying, actually, it's worth it for me to give myself that space and that buffer and that help. So I don't reach the place of suffering. And that was a completely different decision-making process for her. Um, and again, like kind of thinking about what is real self-care, it's, it's in that space of pausing and reflecting and saying, how can I really help myself right now? How can I make choices that um, protect me and my space and my time and my energy and, and it, that it's okay to do that? And in perhaps accepting and also extending help. Absolutely. And I think that is probably where my patients struggle the most um, with receiving help. That's so interesting. You, do you think that there is more of a tendency now to buy something that will make you feel better than ask for something free but you're kind of making yourself vulnerable um, and it's not on your terms. Yes. And it's a risk, right? It's a risk because mm. you're saying to somebody else, hey, 
um, I need something from you. And then you have to wait and see if they receive it positively um, and whether they can give you what you need. And I think our culture hasn't done a great job of, of teaching us how to be interdependable, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and for many... We've got kind of smaller and smaller as communities, haven't we? Like, you know, it used exactly. that whole phrase of it takes a village to raise a child um, and which a lot of people now experience raising children. As you've just said, they think, God, it would be so nice if my mother lived around the corner or if there were 10 other mothers in the village that could help me out or give advice. And we just don't, we don't really live like that now, possibly, and this is a whole different conversation. I think in the West, we don't respect our elders um, in the same way. So you don't get that help and that wisdom that you do when you kind of live intergenerationally. Yes, absolutely. And I think some of it also comes down to what we were talking about before with kind of control and autonomy and sort of this sense now in our culture where, you know, you have your individual family unit and it's supposed to look a certain way and it's supposed to, um, you know, have the picture perfect Instagram pictures and like all of it is sort of under your purview and anything that is messy or gray, um, whether that's giving of receiving of help or, um, you know, not not living up to the expectations that your family has for you, whatever it is, all of that um, feels very scary. I wanted to also ask you about, um, so there's a slight gear change here. I wanted to also ask you about the quackery on the internet surrounding wellness and self-care. Um, and this is where I think things are particularly dangerous because there's a lot of misinformation at the about the powers of healing in certain wellness trends. And I'm thinking of the Australian influencer, Belle Gibson, who claimed that her diet had cured her cancer, but she didn't have cancer. It was all a lie, but several women died from following Gershon therapy, a strict diet of vegetables and fruit, thinking it could cure their cancer in place of medicine. And I think there were some coffee enemas involved too. How in a way that isn't didactic or patronizing because I know that that's when being skeptical of wellness and self-care can really grind people's gears how can you encourage people to really I suppose do their homework on certain elements of self-care or certain therapies in order to not be seduced by basically con men on the internet yeah, that's such an important question. And I think it speaks to, you know, how vulnerable so many of us are to finding that magic solution out there. And I've certainly been guilty of it myself. Um, so I can really empathize with folks who end up turning to folks on the internet that are, you know, presenting all of these sort of uh out there solutions with such authority. Um, I think I would say that anybody who is telling you that they have the 100% certain answer and that their solution is going to give you quick results, that should immediately raise your spidey hairs on the back of your neck. (laughs) Um, Because that doesn't exist. That's not real. You know, that's, that's just playing to your fantasies. And Um, the more vulnerable you are, um, 
the, you know, in your own kind of external circumstances, the more likely you are to kind of fall prey to one of these folks on the internet. The other thing that I'll say is that I think we need to do a better job. And this is something that I'm, um, you know, as I'm writing my book that I'm thinking about, there's a huge difference between wellness and self-care and an actual mental health treatment. Mm. There's a big difference between actually suffering from major depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder that's clinically diagnosed versus, um, you know, being burnt out or just kind of struggling. Um, so you need to really know where you fall on the spectrum and, and things like meditation um, or diet and nutrition are not evidence-based treatments for moderate to severe depression. They're great for mild symptoms um, and to help you feel better, um, you know, just in general, but they're not a treatment for illness. Um, you know, hopefully you don't get too much backlash from me saying that. <laughs> but, no, I think it's, I think it's such a good point because, um, many of those terms like anxiety, insomnia, actually, depression have suffered the fate of overextension and it's become really blurry. And I remember speaking to someone who had clinical depression and she was like, if one more person tells me to meditate or levitate my way out of clinical depression. Another point that I wanna make related to this is that if you're somebody who's, who is suffering from a clinical illness like major depressive disorder or obsessive compulsive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder, whatever it is, a medication and professional treatment is then what allows you to make better choices for yourself in terms of nutrition, in terms of exercise, right? That the backbone mm -hmm. is the professional treatment and then you can go on to make those better choices, which are good for you. Um, but for many of my patients, it's it's almost the opposite in terms of wellness. Like we use their wellness decisions as a marker for how they're doing. So, you know, if my patient says like, I've noticed that for like the past three weeks, I just can't bring myself to go to my yoga class, even though I know that I feel so much better when I go to yoga, then we look at, okay, you know, is this a sign that your depression is coming back? We kind of use it as a, as a thermometer the other way. I've definitely observed women seeking to change their life um, and their patterns and their routines up a lot more than I have the men in my life. And I think that kind of element of restlessness, and obviously this is where self-care comes in, does really affect women more than men. Yeah, I would agree. I, I mean, I only take care of women in my practice, so I am obviously biased in that my, <laughs> my cohort, are, you know, And, and we I, are two women speaking, I get that. Yeah. Right, right. Um, but I do think, yeah, it gets to that point of like women are constantly, and I think it goes back to the paradoxes of our culture where you, you can't win when you're living your life at the behest of all of these external, um, you know, external messages of, of what you're supposed to do. So um, you're constantly, if you're not careful, you're constantly sort of contorting yourself to here's the next thing that I'm supposed to be, as opposed to um, sort of grounding in your own, your own sense of self and what feels good for you, because that might look different than what other people in your life want you to be, who they want you to be.
I want to end on an uplifting note. So let's look at where self-care is good because there are obviously little things you can do, um, not necessarily things you can buy, but things that you can practice or ways of checking in with yourself. I think any way that you can give yourself space to be with yourself and be with your thoughts. So for me, one of my biggest values is uh, creativity and feeling um, feeling like I'm generating something new. So um, I love going on long walks and on my long walks is when I end up taking lots of notes when new ideas are popping into my head, um, things to write about, things to journal about. And I get so much joy and I feel sort of closest to myself when I'm on those walks and when I'm jotting down these notes or scribbling <laughs> these notes furiously, even if I don't go back and look at them or even use them. Um, that's, that's the period of time where I feel very connected to myself. So I guess to our listeners, I would say like, find those moments, um, where you feel like you're kind of the closest to yourself and, um, try to make space for that. So to finding the intimacy in space and the self-respect in self-care. Thank you so much for coming on to Doing It Right, Pooja. Thank you so much for having me, Pandora. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening to Doing It Right. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes. And if you'd like, you can buy my book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? From any bookshop you like, Independent Always Better, Try Hive if you're shopping online, in which I discuss lots more of the myths and anxieties of modern life.